Technology Thinking Mission. This is part two of our interview with Scott Callahan, where we talk about missions, the Old Testament, and the biblical languages. We're going to jump right in. Okay, so this ties in with something you said before about intuition. And Mm -hmm. you suggest that without the biblical languages, we are left with intuition-based approaches to biblical interpretation. Okay, can Mm -hmm. you unpack that, explain that? Yes. So, I mean, I, again, I don't want to be the absolutist saying that someone who does not have any training in the biblical languages, it's impossible to understand the Bible. I'm, I'm not saying that, but it's trying to open all the doors to let God shape our intuitions as much as possible. And we're shutting them out with not trying to get close, as close as we can to what the author wrote in the original languages. So the intuition that I talk about in the book comes down to you and the host nation believer have got your Bibles in your respective languages open. And the host nation believer points to a passage and reads it and says, well, how does that make sense? And then you look in your English Bible and you say, well, that's not what my English Bible says in its meaning, you know, Mm. and then, okay, wait, now you're in a quandary. Are you going to explicitly or implicitly tell the host nation person that his Bible is unreliable because hmm. your, your English Bible says something else. Hmm. Are you going to do that? Hmm. It is possible that his Bible has actually better represented the idea from the original language than your English one has. And to make that judgment, of course, you'd have to have a certain level of understanding of his language as well as the biblical languages. But, okay, let's say you don't have that training in the biblical languages. Well, now you go to another English translation and another and another. Well, Mm. how do you adjudicate Mm. between the different claims? It's just like what you said about the different commentators who have their differing opinions. How do you adjudicate between them if you don't even know the basis upon which the differences appear? Yeah, There are certainly places in the Bible where you have choice A and choice B, and either one could grammatically work. Yeah. But then you assemble evidence for A or B, and you under then you can understand, okay, it's not because this translation is unfaithful that it's chosen B, but the evidence I weigh suggests that A is better. And so instead of intuition, what I want the answer to be, I actually understand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not just cross-cultural workers who will sometimes use the English translation to kind of adjudicate these debates. But I mean, I've seen Chinese students appeal. Mm. It's almost like they're opening up their Greek Bible in their minds. You know, they open up some, their English translation. They're definitely more educated. They can read English. And then they treat that as if that were original. It seems like uh, appealing to English Bibles has a kind of nasty side effect that it treats English Bibles with the same authority as if they were yes. the original language. Well, and, and let's put this in theological terms, what we're talking about right now. The way I, I think it's helpful to frame this theologically is if we are Protestant Christians, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. There's no human intermediary we go through Jesus is our mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is the teaching of Scripture. Okay, so there's no New Testament priesthood, none. So we don't want to set ourselves up as priests, as the hyper-educated priests or anything. But look what we're doing. We make 
we, we set up a priesthood of languages. Mm. When we give English authority, it doesn't have. When wow. we point to the English Bible as, well, your Bible's wrong because the English Bible says this. Well, it, it could be that way, but it's not because of anything, any special characteristic about English. English has no uh, special way of speaking in any more authoritative or logical or poetic way than any other language. It's just different. This reminds me of a quote from Luther uh, I saw a while back where he actually says, some suppose it is sufficient if the preacher can read German, but this is a dangerous delusion. <laughs> yeah, Luther always had a way of being so, uh, you know, indirect with his, with his opinions. <laughs> well, he made some people mad at him because they didn't care for his style. And they didn't, after they got past the style, then they realized what he was saying. And then what he was saying offended them too. So I, you know, there's a time for directness and he was direct. And it's interesting to see what he picked to be direct about in that case. Yeah. The language is funny enough, more and more people from the Reformed tradition, I mean, like the Protestants, evangelicals who come out of the Reformation, that is, are some of the ones I find minimizing the languages, but yet, you know, mm. Luther has so many similar quotes and, and, and other reformers. Yeah, I think, I think the temptation is to say we already have all the answers to theological questions. We have our theological system. And the problem is that you can pick any theological system and then line it up with another small o orthodox system, and there are discrepancies between them, hence theological debates between denominations and so forth. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, members of different denominations have denominationally set disagreements, you know, set by their systematic theologies. Well, th these are not small areas of disagreement in some cases, even in, you know, completely small o orthodox theological questions in those realms. But they can't both be right. They're contradictory. Yeah. Okay, so what should be our basis for kind of coming back to the same theme, right? What should be our basis for theological discussion? Some human-made creed? Well, this group likes that creed. This group doesn't like that creed. They've got a contradictory creed. That's going, that's going to go nowhere. Yeah. The, the only basis, if we have an authoritative and sufficient word, it's, this is where sufficiency comes in, the only basis for talking about theology in any kind of way that goes beyond my opinion or the opinion of those who wrote a faith statement mm. is to go back to the word. And, you know, so, so here we go back to the original languages, giving us this even surer stand on the word. You know, I can imagine someone right now in their car listening and, and they're gripping the steering wheel tighter and tighter. And they're going, this guy's saying that all cross-cultural workers, all missionaries should know Greek and Hebrew. And if not, then they're failures as missionaries. <laughs> I don't think that's what you're saying. Not at all. Not at all. I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that if you look back, like, if you look back at the history of, you know, the, the wonderful history of faithful people throughout the centuries who have said, you know, the Great Commission is not an option. I'm doing it. See ya. 
Well, if you look back in the vast majority of these people's cases, they had a love mm. for the Word of God. And it drove people. Mm. And, and this wasn't just merely a cultural thing. Of course, you know, in, in Europe, in traditional means of education, people were exposed to classical languages. So they had, they were closer in touch with Greek to be able to read the New Testament and so forth in Greek. But the fruits of having done so is it the Bible gripped their hearts and they were able to read out of that Greek New Testament in in ways that would uh, be totally alien to present day experience. And just a quick story that I've, I've read before is there was uh, Army Air Force chaplain in World War II who was taken captive by the Japanese in the Philippines and survived the Bataan Death March. When he wanted something smuggled into the concentration camp, the thing that he wanted most was a Greek New Testament. And his, his person that he spoke with through the wire, so to speak, was able to get him a Greek New Testament. Oh and, that got it, and that got him through the years of starvation, you know, just horrible conditions of trying to support the, uh, you know, the, the folks that he administered to and preached the gospel to, the folks that he was imprisoned with. That's love for the Word of God. Mm. So what I hear you saying is that you are appealing at one level to individuals as much as they can or able, life circumstances, so forth and so on, to prioritize the languages and whatever that looks like, as little as much as possible. But you also are making an appeal to uh, sending agencies and, and schools to prioritize this as a part of the development for people right. who are going into that ministry. Well, and it's for completely practical reasons. This is mm. not abstraction we're talking about here. I mean, I have, I mean, I, th I think someone who's gripping the wheel has hopefully heard me over and over again talking about the Word of God shaping the heart and the soul and the person falling in love with Scripture in ways that, you know, are opened up by having access to the Word of God in its, its most vivid detail, which is with the biblical languages. So this is utterly practical. So I reject the categorization of biblical language learning as a theoretical course. Hmm. It's the most practical course. How can you say that, Scott? No, that well, like so, a, that sounds like maybe that should be the title of this podcast. <laughs> The most practical <laughs> Hebrew and Aramaic, yes. So, well, in Greek, sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, how how can that possibly be? Is it more practical than and you know start listing them off? Counseling, evangelism, preaching—it's the bedrock, you know. So why why? Yeah. Because on what basis will you carry out these ministries? Yeah. On what basis? Is it just merely your upbringing, your personal experience? No, subtract yourself from this message as much as possible. It's not true because it's true for you. It's true because it's transcendently true, and it's certainly going to be true for the person the Holy Spirit calls to faith and whole life trust in Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, you write that if missionaries are going to choose not to do biblical language training at some degree or another, then it you, you appeal to them, just simply take stock of the consequences. Just own that decision and that there right. will be 
a limitation on effectiveness. There will be an undermining of communication. And one of those consequences is what you call, it's another priesthood, the priesthood of missionaries. Yes. Yeah. You're, act, you're actually saying that you prefer the intuitional approach, meaning you're going to depend on your limitations rather than trying to minimize your limitations. You're, you're maximizing your, your limitation in being able to access the Word of God instead of minimizing it. You know, we are utterly fallible human beings. We need to take seriously our sinfulness and so forth. Because of that, we need to disempower ourselves as much as possible to extract ourselves, to remove our personal opinions and preferences in this cross-cultural communication act, because it's not about us at any place along the line. It's about Christ, and it's so, about the Word of God. So since we seem to be doing this Reformation theme, priesthood of this or that, we're talking about Luther, it's almost like you're saying, you're saying that we can easily fall into the role of cross-cultural popes, that yes. our, our message and whatever we say as the missionary, Westerner, whatever, whatever it is, that there's an authority inherent to what we're saying. Yes. Yes. So there's, there's nothing more true than what the missionary says is the idea that's set up if the missionary is always solving the theological questions, mm. especially if it's based on intuition. Like there's an implicit message mm. that, that people get when they come, they ask the question, they get the answer, they leave. Instead of the, the missionary responding, well, you know, it says in God's word right here, yeah. this is what it says. You know, yeah. and by the and by the way, do, do you see that? And if you don't see that, let's talk about it. You know, and so yeah. it's always the what is the referent here yeah. for the authority? We, we need to not let the authority vector hit us. Yeah, we need it to to be always on the word. And a lot of people don't understand from an, a a majority world perspective, an honor shame culture perspective, whatnot. I saw this a lot in East Asia that the assumption was that if the Westerner said it. It must be authoritative because, after all, they come from a long tradition of Christianity. And so yes. they really do get put just right next to the Scripture, if not practically above Scripture, yes. when, when they state their opinions. It's, it's probably a fairly seductive kind of situation where if the missionary is speaking in very pragmatic terms mm. about advice— for the native church believer. Well, that sounds really good because we're giving a tool, pragmatism, mm. for figuring out what the right thing to do is in any given situation. So you actually don't have to value that so much as an ultimate value in your culture. It's, it's a human desire. Look, what's the basis for making decisions? Whatever works. You know, and that, that's totally the Western approach, right, to, to everything. That's what our gut tells us is, What's going to get us out of this situation? What's going to work? That's what we should do. Well, when we communicate pragmatism, that's, that's what's going to come out of our intuition. Well, that's going to be taken on by the, the host nation believer. And okay, so then, you know, you think you've subtracted yourself when you retire from the field, you leave, but your imprint has stayed, your, your bad imprint of pointing people towards pragmatism. And, mm. and the problem is pragmatism is going to result in different answers every time. 
Mm. And it's going to set up a priesthood again of the one who gets to be the pragmatist, yeah. the one who gets to make the call. It's, it's really bad. It's really bad. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. While we started talking about whether cross-cultural workers should learn the biblical languages, you really also are making the argument that uh, people should be teaching believers you know, mm. with the, you know, in other countries, cultures, whatever else, the languages as well. Yes, I am. And, and so there's the, the, gr- the grip on the steering wheel even harder, right? So <laughs> wait a minute. You're saying that we should be teaching the biblical languages to the host nation believers. Well, yes, I am. And why? Okay, so have you heard my theme so far? It's not about me. Biblical authority and sufficiency is supreme in what I'm trying to say, at least, mm. which is, I'm not the authority the Word of God is. So what can I do to do my part, at least, to be faithful here in transmitting this message implicitly and explicitly? Well, I need to pass on the training that allows the best access possible to the Word of God. And, you know, it, it may be that that will take longer than my lifetime because of just the stage of the national church, you know, got it, got it totally. But this needs to be part of our overall strategy of freeing the national church from dependence on the mm. Westerner. Now, now, why is that so such a dramatic need right now? Well, our culture is faintly resembling Christianity less and less day by day in our normal ways of, of, of thinking and responding to things, even as, as believers. But the Western culture way is post-Christian mm-hmm. and heading off in an opposite direction as fast as it can. Do we want that to be the default that we've left, left behind when we, when we finally uh, leave the field? Or do we want the, the believer there to go back to the word? You know, it's not what was the right answer in First Baptist Church in our town that counts? It's what does the Word of God say? Yeah, and that that's, that interacts with the circumstances on yeah. the field. You use a strong word in your article that basically said, if we as a church do not prioritize the biblical languages in other host nations, you know, uh, cross cultural ministry, that we actually are being paternalistic. Yes. As people say in the South, dim is fighting words. <laughs> I'm ready. Bring it on, right? No. So <laughs> explain that. I think you've laid a foundation yes. for this. Yes. But just explain that because somebody might say, well, that's kind of an overstatement. What? Anytime that I say I know what's best, you know, I, I, I'm filtering. I'm, I'm deciding what's best for the host culture. 
on what basis are you deciding, Scott? You know, please tell me. Well, you know, my accumulated years of experience. Does your experience have authority? And so it, it just sort of always comes back to where's the authority, the authoritative and sufficient word, mm. extract yourself. Okay, so is it paternalistic to deny the opportunity to the host nation believer to learn the biblical languages when the person has the potential and when this person's knowledge of the biblical languages that will empower interpretation be withheld? You know, th that, that's really bad because I think that, you know, what could motivate a person to do that? The person says, well, you know, that that's really something that's kind of advanced. Yeah. Who are you to say mm. it is entirely possible? Listen, please. It's entirely possible that the host nation believers potential mm. is far greater than yours. Mm. And shouldn't you be happy? Shouldn't you rejoice if that host nation believer is going to have an impact in that setting far exceeding anything you could have done in your lifetime? Shouldn't yeah. that be something just to marvel at the goodness of God to even let you be part of? Yeah. And you know what I found? I assume you've seen this as well, that at least my Chinese students, they tended to grasp and enjoy Hebrew uh, more than Greek on the whole, uh, which is the exact opposite of what people think. Mm. Uh, what people oftentimes think in the West, They're like I do Greek, but I don't know about Hebrew. You right. know, so you talk about this capacity, this uh, you know inclination towards you know the languages. At least that's how I, I've seen it. Yes. Well, um, I contend that if Hebrew and Aramaic are taught well, they're actually not as hard as their reputation suggests that they are, and that the reputation comes from some fairly poor language teaching methods in the past. But we can set that aside for the moment. Um, what you said is that the, the Chinese whom you have taught have gravitated towards the Hebrew. And I, I think that's partially due to some affinities between Chinese and Hebrew, actually, mm. that, that they grasp onto, just like, I think, uh, many Westerners like Greek because they sort of come into the study with having heard of, you know, some of the alphabet before, like the letter P or Pi is, of course, 3.14159265535. And they've seen that, they've seen that before, right? But they haven't seen a hey. They haven't seen a zadi before, this kind of thing. So Hebrew seems alien and foreign in a way that Greek does not. And Greek is very complicated in its syntax, which enables some highly abstract thinking, but, you know, concrete thinking in a very logical way. So, I mean, it's, it's all very good that Greek is as difficult as it is. And Hebrew lacks a lot of this complexity. Thus, is it inferior as a language? No, it means that there's a, a beautiful simplicity yeah. to how the Old Testament expresses its stories. Yes, its propositional content, its wisdom, a beautiful simplicity. Yeah. You know, and this on kind of closing out this issue of paternalism, you know, there's people speak of like self-led churches, uh, self-funded churches and so forth. Mm -hmm. These, these uh, self uh, dynamics and people talk about now churches need to, internationally around the world need to be self-theologizing. Mm. But, you know, I think how can 
these church leaders around the world be self-theologizing if we don't train them in these critical matters of theology and language and whatnot? Right. So there's there's much good in this concept, but what's the basis is is an important question. And let's also keep in mind, we want all national churches everywhere to be the church, the same church as us. Now, when we say the same church, we don't mean same cultural or whatever, but connected to the story the same way we're connected to the story. Yeah. Part of the worldwide church. So self-theologizing, un- understood you know, rightly, conducted from the right basis, is beautiful because it's disempowering the person who wants to be an authority mm-hmm. in, in, and to thereby steal God's glory and steal the authority of the word of God. It's disempowering to that person, but it's much more importantly, it's empowering where it's freeing the host nation believer from the denominational or other limitations that the fallible human beings brought with them when, thank God, they obeyed the Great Commission and were the first contact of Christianity to that group of people. And so the self-theologizing idea means that the host nation believer is going to progress to the point, and let's say, as re- let's let's get them there as soon as we can, and not paternalistically try to slow them down. Right, mm-hmm. progress as rapidly as possible to being a contributor to the worldwide church. Yes, I mean, see, it's it's great to try to facilitate the growth of the church within a cultural environment, but why not let the entire world church benefit from the great gifts of God? that are going to be bestowed upon this burgeoning movement mm. in some local setting. Yeah. Well, whew, we could talk about this for a long time. Uh, I want to, we have, I just have a few, we'll have a few closing questions for you, but you know, in light of what we've been saying, a couple other Luther quotes uh, come <laughs> to mind. I, I wrote a blog post a while back with all these reformers talking about the biblical languages. And here's just a few that I think really kind of capture a lot of what you've said. Luther says, let us be sure of this. We will not long preserve the gospel without the languages. If through our neglect, we let the languages go, which God forbid, we shall lose the gospel. Wow. And then he said, he even said this, if the languages had not made me positive as to the true meaning of the word, I might still remain a chained monk. In other words, Mm. the reformation might never even happen. Yes. And wow. Okay. So a couple of closing questions for you, my friend. Yes. There are other people now who are despairing. I forgot my languages. I never studied the yes. languages. So, yes. And there is hope. So, okay. What's the hope? And, you know, I mean, there's kind of two different <laughs> directions here. Okay. There's the hope right. of like, can I start learning? And then there's the hope yes. of, guess what? I'm not going to learn, but what can I right. do? You know, right. What would you say to them? Right. Well, so the hope is that, you know, God is constantly acting to redeem. So, you know, repent and believe the gospel is our message, right? Right. I thought you were going to say repent and study Hebrew. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) We'll get to that. Okay. But yes, there are probably some people who have have gotten to the point in life where they, they simply you know, the advanced age situation, it's just not going to happen or whatever. You know, we are, we are all fallible human beings and we've made our decisions and, and we, we trust 
and God's good grace in our life and everything. But okay, let's set that case aside. And how about the person who can? What's, what's the hope? So if a person is preparing to do cross-cultural international missions, I, you, you, guys, you've got to get this training. And you can. There's, there's sort of no excuse if you don't take advantage of the one setting where you can get this kind of training, which is the formal training. You need a teacher for this. Uh, there are online programs, yes, but the initial grounding in the biblical languages, it's best to have a human being that you can bounce this off of. Just like we wouldn't just use Rosetta Stone, if possible, to learn the language of the people that, that God is calling us to. We want to talk with real people. So similarly, get your formal training in a seminary or other kind of setting, grab it while you can, and then use it in your life. Now, so the next case is the person who's lost it, right? They got the training through disuse, it's gone away. So there are wonderful resources out there. So daily dose of Hebrew, daily dose of Greek, go to those websites. You can get a, you can sign up on the email list and get two minute videos. It takes nothing as far as time, two minute videos that just day by day are gonna walk you through Hebrew and Greek scripture. It's going to help you work on those atrophied muscles. And the grand announcement that I'd like to make right now is that I am now the daily dose of Aramaic guy. Mm. So that's coming in the future. If you, if you look for it now, you won't find it, but I've begun with the creation of the videos for that. So let's make sure that we don't let the Aramaic parts of the Old Testament drop out of the canon. But it, you know, these kind of resources are definitely available. What if the person says, well, I need more? Well, certainly there are more resources. Use your time back at home when you have some time to, to rest and reflect, to get into some, perhaps some training programs, to get into, if you can read it for yourself and sort of do self-training programs like that. But use that time because what are you doing when you're doing that? Studying the original languages of scripture is an act of worship mm. because you are saying God is worthy Scripture, the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, is worthy of this kind of attention, and I need to be a faithful witness to it, and I'm going to be as faithful as I possibly can. Thus, I expend this energy, this time, in an act of worship by studying. Wow. You know, I can imagine what you'd say to this next question, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because we ask everybody these questions, this question. Um, but, I mean, at least besides learn Hebrew and Greek. Okay. That'll be, you can't say that answer. Uh, yes. One of the questions we always ask on the show is what should missionaries learn from theologians and what should theologians be learned from missionaries and mm. cross-cultural workers? And I already know your answer is uh, half that question, <laughs> right? But if you're not allowed, if you're not allowed to say, learn the languages, what are some things you would say that each side needs to be learning from each other? Well, at a basic uh, level, we wouldn't need to bring in the languages to answer this question. So that's, <laughs> we're safe. We're safe for now. So what can these camps learn from each other? On one side, the missions folks. On the other side, the theology folks. Well, I, I think we need to come to an awareness that missions is not an independent field. There would be no missions if there were no scripture, if there were no gospel message, if there were no theology. So missions conducted without that grounding, of course, the biblical grounding, is not missions at all. It's not faithful. 
you know. So missions must have a strong biblical theological grounding. And, you know, the purpose of the book that we wrote, World Mission, was basically to call the church back to a biblical theological approach to all aspects of mission. So that's that's that part of the equation, what should missiologists learn from the field of theology. So, you know, should learn from theologians. I'm not sure because theologians are sinful human beings, just like missionaries are, <laughs> but learn from the field of theology, submission to the word of God. And then what should theologians learn from missionaries? What should the, that field learn from missiology? Well, the existence of missionaries should be a constant reminder of our obligation for great commission obedience. And where are the limitations when Jesus issued that command? Well, this command is just for kind of people who are interested in that kind of thing. No, it's for everybody. And so the application of the Great Commission to everybody's life, this is something that missionaries can help with when they go and speak with people who are not doing the cross-cultural international missions, not to help them discover how they're sort of accidentally doing missions in their lives. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, you're not accidentally doing it when you're not even aware that you're obeying the Great Commission because the Great Commission has to do with content. Baptize them. Teach mm -hmm. them to obey everything that I've commanded you. It doesn't happen by accident. Mm -hmm. But missi missiologists, missionary practitioners can help the broader church mm -hmm. see that obedience to the Great Commission is a whole life thing mm. where in, in whatever setting God has called us to. And so there needs to be faithful obedience to the setting that God has called us to, and then faithful Great Commission obedience within that setting. Yeah, beautiful. Amen. Well, brother, uh, would you let people know how they can contact you, read more of your writing? Could you let people know about that? Mm. So most of my scholarly works you can find at my academia.edu page because, you know, sometimes your email address changes or whatever. So that's a reliable way to, to find what I've written. And we'll put links to this in the show notes. Oh, great. Great. And then through that page, then that provides access to these materials. Plus, of course, I, th I think you would get to the missional heart that I've been trying to convey through the book, World Mission, Theology, Strategy, and Current Issues that's available from Lexham Press and uh, instant download if you get it electronically. So I, I would really suggest this book as a way to rethink Great Commission obedience in all of life from a biblical theological standpoint. So you're going you're gonna to hear a lot of me in that book as you know one of the editors and, of course, the contributors. And then, of course, for going deeper in one of the main things we've talked about, which is the importance of the study of the original languages of scripture. Obviously, this is something I continue to be involved in. So in the future, please tune in to Daily Dose of Aramaic, but also certainly open up a dialogue with me about you and your circumstances in life right now. What can you do to um, begin to even more demonstrate your love for God's word and let it soak into you through study of the original languages. I'd love to have that conversation. Thank you, Scott. And thank you guys uh, for joining us on this episode of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. It has been a privilege to talk to my friend here. We ask you to uh, keep listening and keep the conversation going. 
Till next time. Bye.